Welcome to Wild Quincy, a podcast that looks into the little-known and forgotten past of Quincy, Illinois. Two things that you would never hear in the same sentence are Quincy and Ocean's Eleven. But shortly after the Civil War, Quincy indeed had its own Danny Ocean and gang visit town. But they weren't here to rob a casino. Oh no, the stakes were much larger. In fact, millions of dollars larger. Find out the story here next on Wild Quincy. Now, here's your host, Chris Ketters and Travis Hoffman. Well, Travis, back here for episode two of season three of Wild Quincy. And, uh, you know, we had a a great conversation last week talking about uh, the Civil War in Quincy. I, I still... I still can't get over it. It was such so much detail and so interesting. I, I think I listened to the episode twice, Travis. Yeah, that's one of those one of those topics where we just keep on rolling forever. On it feels like, yeah, definitely interesting stuff, Chris. We talked a lot about it, but yet obviously we we still miss stuff. And oh, totally. I think did we get a text message from one of our Patreon? followers yeah one of our most vocal and and fans we we always enjoy hearing from kevin anderson said hey this is the former mayor of big neck kind of an inside (laughs) joke which we appreciate he asked if we found any stories about civil war soldiers taking pot shots across the river to each other i don't think i stumbled across anything like that chris did you no, no. I, and you know, you get to really get to think about it now. I was like, well, that's kind of interesting. But then I got to think, wasn't there Union soldiers in West Quincy? Yeah, you know, I mean, things get a little <laughs> riley. De- well, you know, with all the uh, the brothels down on Quincipi oh, Island. Yeah. I mean, you were even closer to the action. Get a little booze in you. Get a little, well, who knows what else. And uh, <laughs> and then shoot a, few, <laughs> shoot a few things over the river there. It, it probably happened, but we surely didn't see any documentation of it. Yeah, you never know what could happen in that same frame. But you know what the cool thing is, is that somebody texted us. And, and if you want to text us, you could do that too. Travis, I think you got that number handy. You know I do. I actually just have it tattooed on my sleeve here. So, 612-666-9453. Please send us a, uh, use a voicemail. If you want to just send a text, you can do it that way too. 612-666-9453. We'd love to hear from you and we'll, uh, we'll be waiting. Well, we got a full episode coming up. I, Travis, there feel, it feels like before we get to the question of the day, there's something I'm missing. What am I missing? Well, I wanted to give everybody an update. A while back, we talked about where people are listening to the show from. I always find oh, that oh, interesting. Yeah. And I thought I'd do a quick top five, a little update, if you will. Top five countries, Chris. Number one, the United States, no surprise. Number two, Canada, eh? Number three, Israel coming in strong at number three. Number four, Australia. Number five, our jolly friends across the pond from the UK, the United Kingdom. Makes sense. Top Seems five, legit. Top five states. Let's see if there's any surprises here for you, Chris. Oh, ooh, ooh, ooh. Yeah. Uh, gonna, gonna Illinois, number one. Boom. Got it. Number two is Missouri. You know it. Number three is California. Yes, sir. Can you go for four and five? uh, Four would probably be um, Texas. No, sir. New York (sighs) brings in number four. Uh, Want to try for five? Uh, Well, then maybe Texas. (laughs) California. California is number five. Good guesses. Oh, what was number two? You uh, said our number three was number Illinois, number one. Number two, Missouri. Number three, Colorado, actually. Oh, I said California. Yeah. Number four, New York. Number five, California. So we appreciate anyone still listening right now. Hey, we were trying to, like, uh, cover all 50. Are we getting close on that yet? We knocked out a good one, Chris. We had been trying for several weeks, several months, to get somebody from Wyoming, and by gosh... We can check somebody that box. Somebody made a call. Somebody, somebody <laughs> called somebody, and we got one download from Wyoming, so I'm nice. counting it. 
Uh, Alaska and Maine, you're in the crosshairs. So if you know anybody in Alaska and Maine, give give them a heads up. See if we can at least get a download. They don't, I don't even care if they listen regularly. I just want to check that box. I think I might be able to do some work for you there. I got a, I have a, a friend in, in Alaska, so he, he might be able to help us out. But no, very cool. Yeah, we always appreciate everybody uh, listening. And um, but if you haven't done it, I know this sounds like a broken record. Let your friends know about the podcast. If you, there's anybody that you're casually having that coffee with some morning and you say, uh, oh, you like history? You should check out this podcast. That's uh, the way to give us some love. Uh, let some other people know that we're out there. So, uh, again, do that and uh, help us out. But I do think, Travis, we're ready for that question of the day now. Are you ready? I'm ready. What do you got for me? So, uh, this one's a little bit different, um, but it's. It, I'm going to give you multiple choice options this time. Okay, right? flying blind here, guys, behind the yeah. scenes. We, we're not setting anything up. I'm completely dumb to yeah. the question. Yeah, I do that on purpose because it makes it more fun. Uh, so, here it is. Where is Quincy's only Jewish cemetery located? I'm going to give you four Ooh. addresses. Okay? Yes. You got 801 North 30th, 3701 Main, 1730 North 18th Street or 1020 South 5th Street? Oh my, that's a good question. And I think I have the answer, but we'll we'll find out. We'll find out after the end of the show here. Yeah, we'll find out at the end of this episode. But uh, we're going to be going into a little bit of Ocean's Eleven style of robbery. We're going to be talking about one of the biggest robberies in the Quincy area ever to take place. It's happening next, right here on Wild Quincy. <laughs> Here's what you missed on the latest After Hours episode of Wild Quincy. Is Jersey. it sad that I just made that connection right now? Uh, <laughs> that Main Street is not just because it's the Main Street, because it's the state. No, I think we're on the, the same states. boat there. I never thought about that either till just there's, now. There's literally, like, stop and listen for a second, Chris. Okay. That's everyone on Patreon laughing at us because we're <laughs> stupid. You hear that? Ugh. Our After Hours episodes are available exclusively for Patreon members by going to patreon.com slash wildquincy. For just a couple dollars a month, not only will you double the amount of Wild Quincy episodes at your fingertips, but you'll also be supporting our efforts as we continue to dive into the wild and crazy history of our favorite town. Also, as a Patreon member, you can take part in our live events and Patreon-only outings, as well as having access to our regular episodes two days before they are released to the public. It's easy. Just head to patreon.com slash wildquincy. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash wildquincy and become a wild thing today. Hey, this is Jennifer. Welcome back to Wild Quincy with Travis and Chris. Back here on Wild Quincy, and this week we're uh, digging into the crime aspect. Not only are we digging into a crime aspect, we're digging back into the archives for this crime aspect. And uh, Travis, I come into this completely blind. Besides what little you told me when we had our bank robberies episode last season, I have no idea where this is going. 
So right. I am super stoked to get involved. I don't even know a year this happened, Travis. So maybe we'll start with that. <laughs> the year was 1874. And to, to your point real fast, make sure you circle back when you're done with this episode and check out the bank's episodes if you haven't, bank robberies. We just, like you said, touched the tip of the iceberg. And this iceberg, my friend, plummets well below the surface. It is a big, chunky mother. And uh, we're going to get to it right now. So, yeah. February 13th or 14th, it happened overnight, technically, in 1874. Let's start with the story here. Arriving to work at 8 a.m. on February 14th, 1874, janitor William Cross unlocked the door and stepped inside the First National Bank. He found plaster from the ceiling laying on the ground, with several rooms seeming disheveled. Oddly, the bank vault door appeared undisturbed. Out of abundance of caution, he rushed to the home of the bank manager, Caleb M. Pomeroy, who would be joined by local law enforcement at the bank, soon gazing with shock and horror at a blown safe, now void of $275,000 that was there yesterday. Little ominous. If you're wondering, $275,000 back then would be like $6,725,485 today. Six million. At the time of the robbery, it was the largest amount of money ever stolen in a bank robbery. All they found was a hole in the, the bank vault ceiling. The robbers had tunneled down from the second floor. Well, some clues led law enforcement on a desperate dash north towards Lima, where the thieves were thought to have been seen, and then on to Warsaw. But that already chilly trail had officially gone cold. No one knew who did it. Or where they went. The money taken in the robbery would never be found. What do you think? This is big news, Chris. At the time, this was the biggest, biggest amount of money ever stolen from a bank. Right here in Quincy. So can I start with the the one question? That is a lot of money. That is a lot of money. Why is that much money in Quincy? I'm glad you asked. I'm going to get to that in just a minute. Okay. We're going to circle. We're going to do a little time warp here. Okay. The First National Bank was located on the northwest corner of Fourth and Hampshire, or it, it, actually, it's the northeast corner. I apologize. Right now, it's a vacant lot. Right, the building that's there presently next to the vacant lot has the mural. I think of flowers on it. If you're going uh, north in Quincy on the one way there on Fourth, you can look at uh, kind of catty corner to Tiramisu, if you will. And the reason. The reason that uh, this was this was a bank, Chris. This was a new facility. This was of the latest technology. It was a marvel of security. The latest technology that was thought to be burglar proof. Aren't <laughs> they all? Aren't they all? And I'll tell you why they had this much money and why they needed that much security. It was the headquarter of the Fourth Internal Revenue District of the United States, and all the funds collected from the area were deposited here. Now, these large amounts of cash were needed because they had to always have it on hand in the case of a large land purchase or some kind of high-dollar transaction that had to happen. Little did Quincy know that a team of expertise bank robbers had targeted this bank months ago and for weeks had been working together on setting in an ingenious uh, plan to rob it. This is where the Ocean's Eleven music comes in, Chris. <laughs> this is not a smash-and-grab job. This is a meticulous situation, headed by a Mr. Robert Scott. Now, he's no stranger to the area, Chris. He grew up just north of Quincy in Warsaw. He actually is a nice segue from our last episode. He served in the Civil War. Hmm. Well, b between some efforts to desert. 
but he's he's still served. <laughs> uh, funny story. I just drove up and saw his tombstone today. Oh wow! And it was complete with a nice little U.S. flag, as he was a Civil War veteran. Little little do I think that groundkeeper know about all the desertions or the fact that he was a robber in some of the most crazy stories in the world, buried in a small <laughs> little cemetery between uh, Lima and Warsaw, just 20 minutes away. And anyhow, after the Civil War, he found work as a deckhand on the Mississippi. His real passion, however, lent him his nickname, Hustlin' Bob. Robert Scott was well-dressed, handsome, smart, and pretty quick on his feet. He found, a, he found a life paying the bills through a world of the criminal life, scheming and thieving, often in hotels, charming the ladies and maybe even the men, making a living as a gentleman thief. His partner in crime was James Dunlap, who also spent time in the Civil War, serving most notably under the command of General Sherman. Then he spent time as a brakeman on various railways. He was also a handsome, smart kind of guy. The two would be introduced by a former cellmate of Robert Scott. They quickly made a name for themselves in the New York criminal circuit, getting to work putting a crew together to continue living the high life by using their intelligence and criminal connections to stage elaborate bank robberies that were anything but a smash-and-grab job. Is this where Sticky Fingers comes in at? Sticky Fingers. And there's a lot of nicknames. No good Sticky Fingers. Uh. But, uh, yeah, they... They had put together and attempted several robberies by the time they made their way to Quincy. And these were very meticulous, planned out. They kind of had a template. Some were successful and some were abandoned because there was maybe traces of their their work. In one one effort, uh, the bank manager discovered a fine layer of dust on everything that they realized was from the attempted tunneling down. I think they had almost made it to the vault (laughs) vault, uh, ceiling. When they had to give up because they knew they were caught. So they, they got out of town before they could get caught. Huh. Uh, in the world of heightened banking security, the common bank robber was quickly, you know, the guy he was running in, doing smash and jab grab. There was, there was kind of a hiatus in that. It wasn't happening right now in history. It would obviously make a return later in history with your, uh, your famous robberies in the 40s and 50s. And we talked mm-hmm. about that in some of the robberies. Dillinger, yep. But, but these guys decided... That uh, instead of working harder, they were just going to start working a little smarter, getting in their possession a secret weapon that would be the key to their success. This secret weapon came in the form of a William D. Edson. Edson was employed by the Her- by Herring and Company, a well-known maker of bank safes. Chris, hmm. Edson worked in making and selling safes for placements in high-security banks. Edson knew it all: the vulnerabilities how they were put together the profiles and uh, the profiles and the average cash amount kept on hand at these banks. He knew it all. Edson was their meal ticket. He would feed Scott and Dunlap with all the information they would need to rob banks at night. And in return, Edson would get a little piece of the action. Now Scott often placed class. This is, this is like some real top level criminal stuff. Chris Robert Scott would often communicate with Edson but he would do so in a very cool bank robbery way. See, he would place classifieds in the New York Herald with coded messages. And those coded messages gave a time and location where he wanted to meet Edson. So their main way of communicating or setting up meetings was through the classified section of the New York Herald. So they would exchange this information. Uh, A lot of times they would kind of pay off for the latest bank job if it was successful. 
And one of these bits of information that was exchanged was a method of safe cracking that Edson had utilized and kind of put together with his intimate knowledge of a safe's construction. Now, this method would become known as the air pump method of blowing safes. And picture it, if you will, the method involved using putty to kind of cover the majority of where the door and the safe, that little gap, comes mm-hmm. together. And then there would be two small holes in the putty at the top of the door and at the bottom of the door. Now, Edson had a vacuum pump device that they would put into the bottom little seal of the door. And in the top of the door was introduced a piece of paper holding fine gunpowder, basically. Oh, wow. So this gunpowder would be sucked into the door space underneath the putty, fully coating the inside. Then they would take a a small little pistol, get it real close to the open spot on top, tie a line to it. It would go far away enough that you wouldn't get caught in the crossfire. And they would uh, pull the trigger. Hmm. And that ignition source would ignite all the black powder that was lining the safe door, and it would blow it right off. Wow. So what's interesting is the the robbery in Quincy was thought to be the first ever implementation of this style of bank robbing. Huh. So essentially, this is the plan for Quincy. Um, they were going to try it on this job. Now, Edson didn't necessarily have a lot of... Uh, a lot of knowing of this job in Quincy. He was more, they more just utilized his method. In some in some situations, he was a little more, a uh, little more relevant to the actual job, where maybe he knew the exact safe, and maybe he knew that well, if you just exchange the faceplate of this safe with another safe uh, faceplate, you could get right in. Little little things that uh, definitely gave Dunlop and Scott uh, a one up on the competition, shall we say? What do you thought so far, Chris? This is pretty pretty crazy story right now. I'm just I'm just along for the ride right now. <laughs> right. They they picked Quincy. They picked Quincy. This was the place that they were going to do the do the job. Scott and Dunlop had a vast network of thieves at their disposal, and they quickly assembled the team. Uh, the exact number and the identities of of these guys are a little bit murky, but through the different research tunnels I went down. The, fo- <laughs> the following guys were part of the team. This is where the montage would appear on the video, Chris, <laughs> on the movie. We had Dave Cummins, a.k.a. Little Dave, Tom Shang Draper, Billy Flynn, Big Tom Bigelow, and George Mason. They were all referenced among a lot of other great named guys. Ola Red Leary would have been part of the team if he hadn't been nabbed in a previous banking attempt. <laughs> So the plan was that an un- a woman that was not specified, who may or may not have been Robert Scott's wife, it's kind of, nobody admits this, but she's always unnamed, would usually arrive in the town first where they were going to rob Chris. And she would set up shop. She would uh, kind of secure housing for the team. Mm-hmm. And accommodations were made. They kept the, the apartment or the house very furnished, or very not furnished, actually, just the necessities, very low key. And one by one, the team would roll in. And they would kind of just camp out in the house during the day. They didn't want to be seen. They didn't want to be going out in public. The lady of the house would be out always visible. So the neighbors would reference her as the owner of the house. It's kind mm-hmm. of, you know, the, the whole uh, smoke and mirror situation here. Yeah. Other accounts say that one of the robbers, Tom Bigelow, might have uh, rented a small cottage at 8th and Oak. Maybe they had a couple different safe places. I don't know. There was a lot of murkiness over some of these details. 
Well, at any rate, everybody would arrive, and in the cover of night, they would they would go, they would do their various location scouting, they would get things set up. The full team might not have got there till a little later on. It wasn't super detailed in when, where, or how many guys were there at any given point. But surveillance was a big part of this effort. This is weeks before the robbery, Chris. Wow. They had to, they understood. They had to monitor. They had to know what the nightly patrols were for law enforcement. They had to see the activity of the bank employees who was there. They had to confirm that there wasn't a night watchman thanks to this high brand, fancy new new safe. They they knew it all. But the biggest part was to get access to the office that was on the second floor directly above the bank vault. And this office housed the offices for the Quincy, Missouri Pacific Railway. Ooh. One of the members of the crew, now here we go back to some, some Ocean's Eleven stuff. What they would do is they would utilize wax to make an impression of, a, of the lock on the door mm-hmm. and then basically reverse it to get keys made off of it. So they were able to get their own keys made based off the wax impressions from the lock itself. Wow. This way, they could gain access to the second floor of this building. And every night, they would set to work carefully taking up a section of the floor and starting to remove debris that would tunnel down into the top of the bank. So can, penetrate. can I dig into that for a second? Yeah, let's no, do it. no pun intended there. <laughs> uh, but so with this being a... Um, a bank vault. When I picture going from a second story to a first story, I'm thinking about floor joists and, and, and plywood and things like that. I'm guessing that that is not what the the difference between the second right. floor and the first floor is. Are we looking at something different besides floor joists and, Let, and yeah. stuff like that? Well, you're, you're right on the money as far as the actual building materials itself. They would, every night, they would basically lot, you get that all packed up clean up any mess, and then install the floor section above the the negative, you know, re- recessed area okay. where they had been working. Oh, yeah, because this is a public place. Yeah. This oh. this place was in business during the day. These guys went to work in this place by business, by day, you know, nine to five, these guys were a business, and they never caught on. Wow. They were so thorough. But, yeah, the, the building material is there, and there was- Is it like I a concrete, say, though? Uh, I didn't have the exact thing. I'm sure it was a combination of mortar and concrete okay, and okay. everything else. But the, the top of the vault was of, of a metal material, okay. which they were fully prepared for. But the whole the the that was kind of the last step was just they had to get down to it. Wow. So that's okay. what this is what took so long. Wow. Yeah. Uh, at any rate, they uh, the ceiling of the vault was eventually you know reached after nights and nights of this work, and it was time for the actual job itself. This was just the setup. So on the day before, they sold everything in the apartment, got rid of it all. There was nothing left. Sold it for cheap. No evidence of the, you made sure it was completely clean. Sun went down and they headed out. They headed out to the bank. They penetrated the ceiling of the vault. They brought the air pump and the equipment necessary down. Two, two guys from a rope went down. And in the middle of the night, about, about 2.15, and I say 2.15 because the force of the explosion was big enough to stop the clocks on the first floor. Huh. So several people in the area did hear an explosion late at night, but the fact that this was all happening within an actual bank vault muffled the sound so much that no Hmm. one thought twice about it. Hmm. So these guys got the money, put it in great big bags, and then they booked it. They got into a horse and buggy, and they headed north. No one was wise. 
This was probably about three or four in the morning at the time they hit they left town. So they they booked it north. They ended up in Lima, Illinois, where I, it must have been. It's a little murky on the timeline of when they ended up actually leaving the Warsaw area. But at Lima, they must have been pretty hungry because they stopped and they got food. It was probably in the morning of the 14th. And the person who it was like a like a kind of a public house, food, lodging, everything else. The woman indicated that the two guys were a little leery. They didn't necessarily want to leave the buggy, but they noticed two great big bags in the buggy, which was probably the cash. And they noticed the horses in the buggy had been rid very hard. They were going fast. The guys, the both Dunlop and Scott, they actually got 12 ears of corn to give to the horse, to their little nutrients on their way to Warsaw. Essentially, they made it up to Warsaw. And at this point, you know, maybe at this point, the law enforcement was just discovering what was going on in Quincy. They got to Warsaw at the time a train ran through there, jumped on the train, and they were gone. And they they got away with it, Chris. It was end of story. Let me ask you a question here. Yeah. From what you just said, it makes it sound like they don't know exactly when they did find out. And I had to look it up because I was curious. If I'm like, truly, I wonder if they did this on a weekend to make it work better. And so I looked up on the calendar. In February 14th of... Um, well, 13th and 14th of 1874 is a Friday and a Saturday. It makes sense. You know, and we did come across stories in the past about banks being open on Sundays, but I wonder if that would be a thing to where they knew they had plenty of time that they would be able to get away before banks maybe opened up on Monday. Oh, I'm sh- they'd been in Quincy weeks, weeks before the robbery. So they knew exactly what the schedule was. Yeah. So they had ample time that they weren't going to get caught. Yeah, the first guy there was the janitor, and that was, I think I thought I saw reports of him maybe showing up at eight in the morning, which kind of lines up with the banker hours. I think straighten up the place before they open. So these guys are gone. They get away. They end up spending the next couple of years in in the Coney Island, New York area. Robert Scott even purchased a successful racehorse. With and if irony isn't great, if you don't appreciate irony, you won't appreciate this next part. The horse's name was General Knox, as in Fort Knox. <laughs> so there was a little irony that, and this was a really popular racehorse that won a lot of you know the the big races in that in that time frame. At any rate, in 1876, they continued doing jobs all through 1875 into 1876, all across the country. Never got caught. In 1876, Scott and Dunlop picked the Northampton National Bank in Massachusetts as their next target. And this was a little different of a job, for there was a little bit of riffraff going on between the, the gang members. Oh, that's never good. Edson was getting a, little, getting a little miffed at him, because he didn't get much of the cut from Quincy. He thought he deserved a little more, but since they only used his device, they kind of scaled back on the cash. And they might have threatened his family a little bit if he didn't help, help him out a little bit more. Oh, boy. So he, he decided to go all in on this, this Massachusetts job, the Northampton National Bank. They completed the robbery, and that eclipsed the record that they set in Quincy for the most money ever ever taken in a bank. So they ended up breaking their own record two years later. And it might still stand. I haven't done a lot of digging. I don't have that exact number right in front of me. They got away with the job. But then Edson decides he's done. And so he goes to the feds, and he turns them in. Oh, wow. Yeah, they're apprehended. A big court case takes place. It's in this whole process that Edson basically lays out the last 20 or 10 years of activity that he's had with these guys. All the Quincy job comes up. 
That's how it's out. They were part of the job. And what's interesting is even though there were multiple guys that were involved in all these 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 jobs, Scott and Dunlap are the only two that are ever uh, stand Ooh. trial or accused for lack of evidence for the other other things. So there's a whole court thing. And these guys these guys are just really handsome gentleman thief, Chris. You wouldn't spot this as like, you know, a guy with an eye, eye patch. You've seen pictures of Robert Scott I posted on Facebook. Look look at look Instagram. at look at Matt Damon and and George exactly. Clooney. I mean, they always look good. Some regular Danny Oceans. Well, <laughs> Brad Pitts, yeah. Right. Uh and, and they looked the part. They looked the part. It, it, they were so unsuspecting that at one point during the court proceedings, and I love this story, a, a older man wandered in because it was open to the public. An older man wandered in, happened to sit down directly in front of Robert Scott, not knowing, and he's looking around, confused, and he actually turns back to Robert Scott and says, where's the criminals at? <laughs> and Scott looks at him and smiles and points to himself and he goes, here's one. <laughs> Just... So this job was a little weird because the level of security was extra high in this Northampton job where they needed a passcode. Mm. So they actually had to break into the house of one of the, the, the security guys in the middle mm. of the night. And he had a family. And so they all took cut off uh, parts of a, a pant leg and put holes in him and used that as a mask. Mm. And so these guys... <laughs> These guys were very courteous, though, for the most part. The wife of the security guy, I believe Dunlap was was her main kind of kind of uh, watching over her mainly. She multiple times complimented uh, so in court, said how gentlemanly he was and accommodating. <laughs> wow, <laughs> it was just a different time period for her husband. Was a little less fortunate because he was the one with the codes, and mm. he he was pretty stoic. And at one point, he gave Scott. Scott was a little nervous. He, this wasn't really part of their playbook usually, the whole apprehension oh, yeah. side of things. And uh, he, he got the code from the security guy, and he knew it probably wasn't real. So he waited about 20 minutes and then told him to give it to him again. Hmm. And, of course, the guy couldn't remember the four-digit number he gave him because it was false. Yeah. So then he smacked him up a little bit. Smart Scott play. Smacked him up. I know, right? But it, Scott, I mean, these were smart. The whole time these guys abducted these people, it was all in their house. It didn't take them anywhere. They didn't refer to anybody by names. They used numbers. Hmm. Like, he was number one. Kind of a reservoir dog situation here with the colors, right? So, essentially, they got the numbers, and after that, the, the police were called, but they'd already got away. So, four years after is when they really got caught, or three or four years later is when Edson came clean. So, they both get put away. Robert Scott actually ends up dying in 1882. He got tuberculosis, basically, because uh. of the poor conditions of the prison. And he was uh, on his deathbed. His wife, his his whole relationship to his wife is very curious, Chris, because she doesn't come up at all until this point. And I don't know if they were actually married. There were several comments in local newspaper research where people were shocked to hear that he was married. So I don't know if they're in innuendos or maybe hmm. maybe the two were partners in more than one way. I don't know. <laughs> I don't want to, you know make any claims here, but there was a few instances where my eyebrow my eyebrow did arch a little bit trying to put two and two together. Um on his deathbed, Scott was able to talk to his wife. And he he said, Look, the only reason James Dunlap got involved in this whole criminal thing was from my coercing. And then he he made her promise him that she would do all in her power to free James Dunlop. 
So Scott dies. His body sent back to Warsaw, buried. And uh, Mary Scott Rowland, I'm going to double check on her name. Yeah, Mary Scott Rowland, the wife, sets forth trying to get James Dunlop out of prison. And she has some connections, Chris. She was able to get a letter from General Sherman himself, hmm. who he who James Dunlop served under, and gets him out of jail after I think only ten years of a twenty year sentence was served. So Dunlap sets off, tries to go legit, ends up in prison maybe five years later. And this is a recurring theme for a while. And We've talked about the Pinkertons in the past, Chris, and a lot of the Pinkerton detectives were the main reason that tracked him down and got caught. Well, James Dunlap was such a good criminal that they wanted to use him as a consultant. Oh, so, kind of like a catch se- me if you can thing. Exactly. So several more <laughs> robberies happened and he kept on getting locked up. And every time he would get bailed out, most likely because of the Pinkertons effort to keep him on as a consultant. So he, he lives to at least his 60s. Uh, in 1903, he was, I think in 1900, he was put away for the last time. And then 1903, he was busted out by the Pinkertons. And it kind of sounds like he was serving as a consultant. But he just kind of disappears into the pages of history. And Mary Scott Rowland, strangely enough, uh, Robert Scott's wife, ends up having an illustrious career as an early pioneer of women's beauty products. Uh, face creams, cosmetics, there's all kinds of ads. She married a very rich second husband with the last name Roland and uh, made quite a career out of it. So I got to connect the dots here. I posted something on Facebook, which was a mural on a building that contained classical cartoon Oh, yes, yeah. I saw that, yeah. And then Ninja Turtles. Yeah. And I, I had to figure out what was going on here. Well, the thing is, the building where the North... The Northampton Bank was at is still standing. It's still there, Northampton, Massachusetts. Another notable thing is it's now a head shop. They sell they sell the best of marijuana. You know, oh, products. hemp shot <laughs> shop. Head shop, oh, okay. hemp shop, and <laughs> and they thought it was criminal that no one realized the huge robbery that happened there. So they they contacted a local mural artist to come in, but this this is. Only half the story, because Kevin Eastman, who some of you comic nerds may know, is the creator of the Ninja Turtles, the comics, the original comics that became what it is today, is also from that town and owned that building, I believe, at the same time that he invented the Ninja Turtles. Wow. So as a tribute, you have classical bank robbers with the four faces of the Ninja Turtles looking wow. onward. It's a combination cool of a tribute. So that, in a nutshell, is basically the life of uh, the Scott Dunlop gang. There was a huge, a huge issue here in Quincy. No one knew if they wouldn't have got caught in uh, Massachusetts after that. No one would have ever known. First of all, with the the thing you're talking about with the Ninja Turtles, I think it's so neat. And I think it even goes to what we're talking about right here with this case in particular that you, it's so weird how some of this history gets obscured, but it's actually a very big piece of the history of a town, and it's no different with ours. I mean, a six million dollar heist in Quincy in eighteen, well, uh, equivalent of that in yeah. eighteen seventy four. That's big. That's a lot of money, and, and again, it kind of gets lost to time. And the same thing happened up there, where you had this happen, where literally there's somebody in the building, <laughs> and they were like, "Wow, this is the building that got robbed." But I want to go back. 
A couple things to clean up here. A yeah. couple questions for you I got. First one is when this robbery happened in Quincy, how quick was the was the public aware of what happened? Was it immediate or like was it in the newspaper the next day or was it did it take a while since it really wasn't a, technically a bank? No, it, it hit the headlines pretty quick okay. afterwards. They weren't trying to trying to uh, cover it up very well. They were desperate for clues. They had mm. nothing. I mean, nobody knew anything. You know, they were just scratching their heads, wondering where it all went wrong. All they had was a hole in the floor that was, yeah. or the ceiling, depending on where you're standing. And uh, yeah, they they tried everything. No one, no one saw it happen. No one knew anything about the guys. They sold all the stuff in the apartments. There weren't any clues there. It was a perfect crime. So the other thing I did have is there was a story that we got into. A while back, and I hope I don't put you on the spot too much here, Travis, but there was a, a story about a woman who claimed that she was part of the crew. Yeah, it, absolutely. Yeah. In 1913, a syndicated article got picked up in a lot of uh, metropolitan papers. And this was from a woman whose whose name was Sophie Lyons, and she was kind of the self-accredited queen of the thieves, Chris. And I think she was actually connected in that same criminal syndicate. But she claimed that she was responsible for setting up the job in Quincy, and she claimed that the president of the bank oh, had a yeah. huge one hundred and twenty thousand uh, dollar missing chunk from the the bank statement. Basically, that maybe he was doing some ill ill things in his own career, not you know being a great manager to the money. And she claimed that he begged her to set up a crew and steal the money. Um, to make up the difference, and that they'd get paid fifty thousand. Does the timeline work for that story? The timeline works, and here's what happened: because that's about the only part of the the actual story that that actually mixes up to reality at all. It, it, she she was just trying to furnish herself as a kind of a it's a PR move, where I do believe that she was well acquainted with a lot of the guys that did the job. In fact, I think she might have been married at one time to. Big Tom Bigelow, who was allegedly actually at the job. And I think it was just some for fodder for her to write in her book. Um, because I, I did some digging because I was curious to find out about the bank manager. Was he like arrested later for embezzlement or something? Yeah. And, uh, and his name was, uh, let's see if we can jump back here. It was uh, Caleb M. Pomproy. And by all accounts, he was the most noble, uh, trusted person in Quincy. He was one of the earliest citizens. He, I mean, he was a up and down, straight and narrow kind of guy from his obituary and everything else. Every time he appeared, so it it, it seems like everyone, even at the time, kind of threw out her testimony as just an attempt to sell some books. But it made for a great story. But unfortunately, not based in reality. It seems like the other thing I was thinking about is when the bank robbery happens in Quincy. Is it the Quincy police the, that are in charge with the investigation? Or, or or is Pinkertons involved by this time? Pinkertons were brought in. Yeah, they were definitely brought in. Obviously, we talked about how big they were. But uh, no, they, they set to work. And, you know, these guys are pros, Chris. They they knew exactly what to do. They had... Here, let me give you a quick rundown of the jobs they'd pulled. Um, in 1873, they'd knocked over the National Bank in Elmira, New York. This was actually one they had to abandon because of dust that settled on the the cashiers yeah. and the doors. And also in 1873 was the Fall City Bank in Louisville, Kentucky. They got about $200,000 out of that one. Then 1874 was the first national bank in Quincy. 1874, they also knocked over a bank in Saratoga. 
Then in late 1874, they knocked over the Long Island National Bank in New York. 1875, the bank in Rockville, Connecticut. Also 1875, bank in Covington, Kentucky. Yet again in 1875, the bank of Pitts, uh, let's see what's that say, Pittston, Pittston, Pennsylvania. And then in 1876, the Northampton National Bank, which they technically got away with, but then uh, their lock expert, Edson, kind of was their undoing. So let me ask you this, with, with Robert Scott, was he the ringleader of this group? Yeah, there's there's a lot of back and forth. He be, kind of became the central figure. Dunlap was almost like the trigger man, so to speak. He he was the one that had most of the technical know-how when it came to crack blowing the safe and the actual execution of like the real technical parts of the job. It seemed like Robert Scott was more the the leading man type that kind of went in, shook hands, kissed babies, kind of weaseled his way into the situations. But the two were very close. So a lot of times they were both attributed as co-leaders. So does Scott claim that Lima, Warsaw area is home? He hadn't lived there in a long time. Okay. He grew up there. His mom was still there. That's why his body was sent back there. But his quote-unquote wife was never really part of the picture other than she only came in at the very last second when he was about to die in prison. Hmm. There's no mention of her before. A lot of people thought... It was positioned in the tabloids and in the papers that she had no idea that her husband was a criminal. She thought he was just like a real. She thought he actually, he actually really? wrote like plays and stuff. Right. Really? Exactly. Right. <laughs> but he was like a play. He would write stuff for Broadway and like several things. He was a writer and all this other stuff. And she claimed complete, just dumbfounded of these accusations against him. But in reality, most people in the lo- the local hubbub was. That's a bunch of BS. Like she was absolutely in the mix. She was probably an accessory. That wife never received a nice, uh, nice jewelry. Um, because my no, my wife would be like, my wife be like, where? How did you get this? I know, I know, I know. She's never mentioned in any stories until he's in prison. Which I, I question if they were actually married at all. Where I want to go with that, though, is, you know, when you think of bank robbers in the United States, you think of Dillinger, you think of Bonnie and Clyde, you think about, you know, uh, what uh, Babyface Nelson, you think of all yeah. of these all these major bank robbers. But where I was trying to go with this with, with uh, Scott is that really, in all honesty, we had in Northeast, or in, sorry, West Central Illinois, we had one of the biggest bank robbers in the history of the United States. Absolutely. Literally sitting here in Adams County. Yeah, and uh, they're pretty lost to history, I'll be honest. Yeah, I mean, the guys you talked about in the 40s and the 50s, these were smash and grab jobs. Yeah. These were jump in with your Tommy gun, boom, 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 put the money in the the bag, I'm out of here. You know, 10 banks one day, let's go for a record, George Nelson. Uh, This was not the world of these guys. These guys were the the Danny Oceans, you know, the George Clooney's, the Brad Pitt's Mm. of their time. I mean, at first we jested about calling this kind of Quincy's Oceans 11. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, it's kind of like that. But the more you dug into this, the more you're like, oh, wow, this is a lot like Oceans 11. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, boy, it was a heck of a story. And, uh, you know, I got to wonder if if Scott hadn't got tuberculosis in that jail cell. Who's to say how many more jobs they would have gone on to do? These guys were smart. They had a huge connections with the criminal world in New York, and they were just quick on their feet. And uh, they, they knew how to knock over a bank, Chris. 
Well, what an amazing story. Uh, a story that we've, uh, first I've heard of when we talked about last season and, and now really getting into it. Uh, it's been amazing, but there's a, I know there's a lot more we haven't dug into, and I'm sure that's coming up on the Patreon side. I got to tell you, I had to laugh one more time just to reiterate this, Chris, is today I drove up to see the, the grave of Robert Scott, and I knew that he was a Civil War veteran, so with around Memorial Day, you often see volunteers go out to the cemeteries and place flags. And sure enough, this this guy died in 1882. A little a little flag adorned his his gravestone, and all it says was Civil War veteran. It does you know you would never know. You would never know. This just goes to show. Walking through a cemetery, everybody's got a story, Chris, and nobody. There's no indication that this guy was a criminal mastermind in a country cemetery between Warsaw and Lima, Illinois. His final resting spot. Well, boy, the stories he could tell. Wow, and that is the amazing story of the Ocean's Eleven-esque robbery in the Quincy area. And we'll have more on Wild Quincy after this. Don't you really want to know? Okay, I was wondering who the father of my baby was. All right, let's take a look. The Miss Cleo DNA test. I'm solely searching for the father of your baby. Oh, it's the one that's very unpleasant, okay? Okay. Um, and he's also the one that had another girlfriend while he was sleeping with you. Yes, he did. Yep, that's him. That's the daddy. Okay. But you knew that. I wasn't sure. I don't know how. The baby looked just like him. Yes, he does. Yeah, so you were in denial, because he has a funny little chin, doesn't he? Yes, he does. Yeah, and the baby have that same little chin. Oh, my God. The cards can reveal things that you will never see by yourself. Call me now for your free tarot reading. Call 1-800-980-8637. Travis, uh, it's probably been 25 years, 20 years since I've heard Miss Cleo. Man, talk about like if you watch Turn On TV after 9 o'clock at night until however long they shut down, you would hear a a Miss Cleo commercial for sure. Yeah. Uh, we were going to play this last week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we decided not to. Uh, yeah. Never Found it better yeah. taste. You know, the, the whole criminal, maybe uh, maybe kind of not so questionable uh, activities with uh, her, her her psychic lines. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you brought that up, Travis, because I have some details oh, about that. Oh, tell me more, Chris. Yeah. So uh, in 2001, uh, actually, sorry, 2002, the Federal Trade Commission charged the company, which was, uh, by the way, called, uh, it was actually called the Psychic Readers Network. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that name. They charged the company and Harris's promoters with deceptive advertising, billing, and collection practices. Okay. By the way, Miss Cleo uh, is actually Yori Del Harris is her real name. Okay. I was just going to ask you that. Yeah. She was not indicted. Uh, the network had billed the victims an estimated get this one billion with a B Holy dollars. We're in the wrong business, Chris. 
<laughs> Chris, I, I feel that there's a listener right now with questions that maybe we can help them with. <laughs> For $1.99 a minute. We're working on the 1-900 number. Hold on. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, so anyway, her uh, promoters agreed to sell by erasing $500 million of debt owed by its victims to the network and paying a $5 million fine to the FTC. It's emerged during a lawsuit in Florida that Harris had been born in Los Angeles and her parents were also American citizens. So, uh, but so yeah, so big things uh, for her that ended up kind of all falling apart. There was actually lawsuits in Arkansas, Illinois, Indiana, Kansas, Missouri, New York, Oklahoma, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, as well as Florida. Uh, against the Psyche Readers Network. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about her. Uh, I know you probably, maybe you remember this, a 2002 video game called Grand Theft Auto Vice City. I remember it quite well. I she did it. the voice of Auntie Paulette. Oh, shoot. In that yeah. game. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was uh, something she did. Also, uh, in 2003, uh, she signed with the Fuse Network as a spokesperson. She was also uh, did a advertisement for a car dealership in Florida. But it really gets interesting uh, that in 2015, which I got a kick out of this, General Mills hired her as a spokesperson for the breakfast cereal French Toast Crunch. Really? What? What yes. an interesting transition. Yes. Uh, so she uh, was doing that. Um, and then also, if you're interested in learning more, there is a 2014 documentary called Hotline, which focuses on telephone relationships between strangers, and it goes into uh, Miss Cleo's background. Were you ever curious to call, Chris? Did you ever I think was. about calling? I was, but I was also like... 14 or yeah. 16 at the yeah. time yeah yeah so i'm like I, I yeah no you never did uh yeah anyway uh unfortunately um uh, miss cleo she did pass away oh, no. uh, in 2016 oh. from cancer Rest so unfortunately we lost her at the age of 53 so but that is miss cleo i'm sure most of you guys remember those uh from back in the day she got paid though that's what i love I mean, she was just a pretty much an innocent pawn in this yeah, so um, it does say here, it says in the late 1990s, Harris began work for the Psychic Readers Network under the name Cleo. She appeared as a television info commercial psychic in which claimed to be a shaman from Jamaica. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Her employer's yeah, website also stated that Harris had been born in Jamaica and grown up there. That was, of course, false. Um, but yeah, she ended up having a little bit more depth with it than than just being a spokesperson. But anyway, Miss Cleo, uh, the rise and fall of that is uh, quite interesting. Uh, Travis, I think we're time, and it's good uh, a good time to go uh, bring in our good friend, Bo. And now, it's time for Words of Wisdom from Adams County. Are you ready for this, Travis? Are we ready to dig into the folklore from Adams County? We learned the, the, the wit and the wisdom of our forefathers and foremothers. Yeah, you, you've teased this one to me. I haven't heard it, but it sounds like it could be <laughs> very interesting. So I'm chopping at the bit to get into this, Chris. So as you might have seen uh, just recently on our Facebook page, we uh, asked for some more numbers. Got a ton of responses. Thank you so much for responding. Uh, we have a bunch of numbers to work off of, and I, I just randomly pick numbers. I actually, I kind of take a little sneak peek at them to see what they look like, but if they look good, then, I, then we'll use them. Um, and so this one came from none other than uh, Kelsey Joe Steffen. And we are diving into Travis <laughs> section. Uh, the section's called Lactation and Weaning. Oh, 
Okay. Yeah. Oh, I wasn't expecting oh. that response from you. Wow. <laughs> the number she chose, uh, Kelsey chose, is 2,655. It's a good number. Like I always Are you say. Ready? Yes. Okay. It's one sentence. A baby should be weaned when the sign is below the sex organ. Words of wisdom from Adams County. Oh, let's get it. Think about this. <laughs> Give that to me again, Chris. A baby should be weaned when the sign is below the sex organ. Below the sex organ. The sign is below the sex organ. What's the sign? I don't know. <laughs> the baby should be weaned. Okay, so sign so stop below. breastfeeding when the sign when the sign is below, is below the sex organ. The sex organ. There's something blatantly obvious. How do they spell sign? S-I-G-N. So like a regular, like a road sign. Boy, I hope this isn't a super obvious thing to women and we're just like I know, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah. Let us know. We have a lot of female listeners who... who... This is our first big head scratcher uh, in this book. The sign Uh, is below the sex organ. Yeah, and sex organ is in quotes. What's the sign? The sign should be in quotes, right? Is there a footnote on that? Know. No. <laughs> oh, my. Yeah. So let us know what you think. The we, sign. We, this is a brain stumper on this I one. I saw the sign. <laughs> that is the wisdom and wit of our forefathers, and evidently they know more than we do. I'm serious. You guys need to let us know. What, what are they talking about? What is this? Do, yeah. do we have any lactation? I know whoa, there's whoa, lactation whoa, whoa, specialists. Where are you going with Nurses. this? Nurses. <laughs> I'm just saying. No, I'm just saying. The, Quincy is, there's a lot of, you know, nurses in Quincy. They're on the, on the, they're on the prenatal or the natal. I don't know what the name of this, where the babies are they born. Know, That's the place. The sign below the Maybe some of them are lactation specialists. Maybe they have some kind of but insight. They have to something this. to do with um, number two, below the sex organ. Poop. Well, I hope it's below. I mean, that'd be weird if it was above it. I mean. I've had a kid, and I've seen had explosions go up their diaper. But yeah, I don't know. If What's the sign? Any other though? reason? Okay, the, the fact that it's in italics. We <laughs> we, could, we boy, could spend we, twenty mm. minutes trying to decipher that. <laughs> you know what? We'll revisit this on Patreon, and we'll do some googling. Yeah, we're gonna. Have I think do some this googling. is important. This is important stuff. It is. It, it, it could be right. groundbreaking. But I speaking of groundbreaking, let's talk about the question of the day. Are you ready for this one, Travis? That was a segue, folks. Give, give, give a minute. <laughs> Just take one second. That was beautiful, Chris. Go on. Thank you, go sir. On, go Thank on. you. Uh, where is Quincy's only Jewish cemetery located? I'm going to give you some choices and some addresses. 801 North 30th Street, 3701 Main Street, 1730 North 18th Street, or 1020 South 5th Street. I hope that the address made it more difficult for you to think of. But, Travis, uh, do you know where that Jewish cemetery is located at? Well, I think I do. I think I do. I'm I, I'm picturing a lot of the cemeteries you're throwing out there, okay. and I think I I think I've got all the lay of the lands where everything's at, and the only one that I know that there are some Jewish people entombed at would be Woodland Cemetery, Chris, which is, would be 501 South. Whatever you said. Okay, that would be your choice. Would be 1020 South Fifth Street. Yeah, I I, I have a I, I'm not super confident, but I'm just throwing out the little that I do know. And I could be completely wrong. I'm going off a wing and a prayer here. So what do we got? Well, you, sir, would be incorrect. 
Oh, you got me. I did. Okay. Uh, Not shocked, but a little hurt. I might might be incorrect in this uh, uh, that Woodland may have a, a Jewish location within Woodland. Um, I, you know, I was thinking of like some of the famous Lincoln friends okay. that are buried there, and I was thinking that Abraham. I know Abraham Jonas was Jewish, but I don't know for sure if he's in there. Okay. So the right answer is actually 801 North 30th Street. It is the Valley of Peace Cemetery. 801 North 30th. So you're looking out by uh, uh, past the mall on 30th Street, out past, by uh, ADM. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so there are some restrictions. I don't know a lot about it. I'm sure there's somebody that's going to be like, Chris, you don't know what you're talking about. But there's restrictions on Jewish cemeteries. They have to be just... Um, Jewish faith, uh, it has to be gated. Um, there's a bunch of different restrictions, and I don't, you know, don't know them all. But uh, so yeah, that is uh, the Jewish cemetery. Obviously, we're not going to be talking about Jewish cemeteries in the next episode, even though I think I just opened up a new can of worms, Travis. I I know very little about that cemetery, yeah. and I've always been curious, but never enough to actually go down that road. Yeah. So, so uh, but no, we're actually going to be talking about the answer that you thought was uh, the oh, right answer. Woodland Woodland Cemetery, Travis. When I got involved with ghost hunting and doing this stuff. I, I really, I went to Woodland Cemetery a lot. We investigated the place a lot. Ended up telling my wife, I said, I want to be buried at Woodland Cemetery. But then the question was, what if I want to get buried at Woodland Cemetery? How do I go about it? We're going to give you the answer to that question. Come to the next episode. This is big. It's the first what if episode, the new category this year. Yeah. It should be exciting because this is a whole new kind of a template to what we're doing. The whole process of it all should be interesting. Yeah. Well, so, we, we yeah. go in the history. We go into the crime. We go into all these different factors. But but let's give the people what they want. Let's give them answers to today's questions. Travis. Right. So we're going to do that right. coming up in our next episode. And when and when you are buried in Woodland Cemetery, you are absolutely below the sign. <laughs> All right, Travis. Before we wrap up, are we missing anything? That we'll, we'll we'll figure it out and hear about it next week if if we have. All right. Well, guys, we appreciate you listening. We'll uh, be back in two weeks for the first What If episode of Wild Quincy. But for Travis Hoffman, I'm Chris Ketters. You've been listening to Wild Quincy. We'll catch you guys next time. Take care, everybody. Wild Quincy is released every other Tuesday and is produced by Chris Ketters and Travis Hoffman. Sound designed by Downdraft Sound and Editing and music by Travis Hoffman Music. I'm Bo Beecraft, and thanks for listening to Wild Quincy. Wild Quincy.